quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. Welcome back to the TradQuest podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and joining me as always... Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's going on, Bob? How much, buddy? How you been doing? Man, I've been just working a lot and enjoying the good weather. Looks like we're getting close to summertime. Yep, for sure. It's nice to have some weather and not have the rain finally. Absolutely. You just uh, got back from uh, shed horn hunting stump shooting adventure with your daughter over in eastern oregon it sounds like yeah it was awesome man we went over there for five days camped out no mommy so yeah we had a riot man it was a good time weather of course was was a little sketchy over there it's kind of off and on snowing and stuff my friend eric and his wife went and their two kids and yeah we got some miles in and hiked around it was a blast didn't want to come back for sure How's that new Dick Robertson bow? Oh, it's awesome, man. It shoots shoots great. It's uh, shorter than my other bow, um, but I don't notice the difference. So, What's the, what's the I'm not a good specs enough on shot that? to notice the difference. It's uh, 60 inches, 48 at 28. So kind of the same specs as my last bow, just a little shorter. It, it's got the bow bolt. It breaks in half. I'll try to post some more pictures up on the Instagram and... And yeah, man, it shoots really good. Shoots, I'm shooting the same arrows so that I didn't have to change anything. Uh, you know, I hold in the same spot. So I really is a perfect switch. I didn't have to change anything at all. Dick was awesome enough. He sent me a couple to try out. I tried out the Koi Wolf, which is the longbow model of the same thing basically. And that shot good, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm a recurve guy, I guess. Every every once in a while, I'd get a stray one with that. So, so I uh, I went with that Wolfer and and uh, Andy, you know, our buddy over there at Addictive Archery, hooked me up with a quiver, threw on that thing, and and it's that strap on Great Northern, and bam, it's uh I'm ready to go right now. We just have a few months till elk season, but I'm ready. Yeah, do you, do you got plenty of arrows? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Make sure you get Andy to make your arrows now because he, told, he, you know, he's like, ah, Bob always wants arrows at, yeah, at the end of August. I know that was my bad last year. I'm usually a little more ahead of it. The, the good news is this is the, it's the first year my shoulders, I'm, I feel like it's at hundred percent, you know, I had a torn labrum and all that stuff. I had surgery a couple of years ago and I, I was dealing with that for close to 15 years. And it was so awesome to be out, be able to go out and just shoot as much as I wanted. I haven't been able to do that since <laughs> seems like, you know, a lifetime ago. So I have no excuses to miss this year, I guess. Yeah. Did you guys pick up any sheds or? Uh, yeah, we found a couple, nothing special, you know, I mean, we just, we were over in a pretty heavily hunted general area that I grew up kind of camping and hunting in. So we just kind of went for the fun of it but yeah we found a few i think i found uh two elk sheds and a couple deer sheds and all the kids found them which was a cool thing my buddy eric both his kids found elk sheds and and i was impressed how much they you know they're 12 and 
nine, I think. And man, they, they put on some miles, those kids. It was awesome. I can't wait till Ava's that age where I don't have to pack her the whole time. <laughs> yeah, man. If you guys didn't check, if you guys are on Instagram, uh, you should go on there and check it out. Uh, Bob posted a picture of him and his daughter. He's got the, uh, Kefaro 22 mag. Um, what do you got it rigged up with an off spray kids pack on there and you're packing yeah. her around all over. That's, that's some yeah, have you, good I backpacking. That, that kids pack and it works good, but man, there's not enough. The time you throw in a few, like a little water bottle and her snack. I mean, there's not, they don't have pockets or anything in them. So I was like, and it's fine for short hikes and stuff, but the weather was, like I said, it was kind of off and on hail storms and stuff. So I was able to load up, you know, like a blanket and a rain jet, you know, all the father stuff. You know, you've had three daughters. Yeah. <laughs> all that stuff. And, and then I just strapped it on there and bam, it, it worked good, man. It was awesome. So that was pretty much like your first outing with the new Kafaro 22 mag and the new, Dick Robertson, Bo, you were just out there sporting all kinds of oh, new stuff, yeah. huh? Yeah, it was exciting. It was uh, good. I, that pack, I, that pack, I like. It fit me good, and I feel like the the shoulder straps are a little wider, which I don't have the best kind of posture, especially long term. You know, packing it kind of starts to hurt my back after a while, and uh, and that I just, I just felt like it helped keep me all all in line. There it sounds weird, but it was it was good, man. It, good comfy pack for sure yeah it looks like it fits you really well that's super cool i haven't got to spend a ton of time with mine yet but i'm looking forward to it um but yeah i i got a new bow yesterday nice uh my uh, buddy alan boyce over at liberty longbows just built me a he's got a, a new chief he's been making the chief for many years but he's made some changes in the design so it's the I don't know, the latest and greatest, uh, from Liberty Longbows. And he built me a, uh, one piece. It's 64 inches. It's 52 at 29 and a half. Um, shooting. I got some new Sherwood shafts. I just, uh, dipped them and stained them and got them all done up. And they're, I think, 7580s. 160s up front it's what i've been shooting for the last year and my arrows fly i mean man i went out there to the deer target i couldn't believe how like no tuning like the bow just loves my arrows they were just spitting out pure and clean and going right where i was looking i mean you gotta love when you pick up a bow and it's just a natural fit and everything goes right without any kind of tweaking yeah, exactly. That's huge, man. That's same thing with that wolfer. It's just like, bam, oh, it shoots the same. Perfect. I don't have to retrain my brain. So it saves yeah, a lot of awesome. time. Alan builds a beautiful bow, man. This thing's got a Zircote riser, and it's on the back uh, of the bow. It's got probably by far the best myrtle wood I've ever seen. It's got trash and junk and high figure and tiger stripes. And I mean, it's got everything you could ever want in a limb veneer out of Myrtle, but Alan's from Myrtlewood country and he's got a heap of quality Myrtle, but at the same time, he's got a heap of quality you. And I've always wanted a you in my bow and I was having a hard time deciding. And he's like, well, let's do both. 
So Myrtle on the back and you on the belly. And the U wood is just as fantastic. It's got knots and figure and streaks and uh man, it's a it's a looker. Right on, man. Well Trad Tradwood. Sweet dude. So that's awesome. Um let's see, we got for all our Oregon guys, uh May fifteenth is the deadline for controlled hunts. You guys need to put in for your hunts. Uh if you're gonna. If you're out of state and you know, putting in for points or hunts in Oregon, May fifteenth, it's coming up on us here pretty quick. Uh Longbow Safari. Uh Traditional Archers of Oregon are hosting the Longbow Safari this year up at the Hoodoo Ski Area, uh, July 5th through the 8th. And I think you have to pre-register in order to shoot at this. And you've got to have your registration in by May 18th, I believe. Yeah. And you can do that at uh, Traditional Archers of Oregon's website. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, we're, we're going to be at the Longbow Safari for sure. So if yep. you guys are anywhere near it, uh, definitely it's going to be an awesome event. We're looking forward to, uh, meeting some new guys and hooking up with our homies and slinging some arrows, whatnot. Yeah, we got, what do- the, uh, we got our website going. So that should be out next week, probably yep. working on that. So hopefully we'll have some shirts and hats. So if you guys want to. Help us out a little bit. Pay for some of this computer crap we had to buy to do this. Um, buy some shirts and hats from us. Yeah, that'd be, that would help the podcast out a ton. Uh, what else we got? We got uh, Compton's, uh, their uh, annual uh, rendezvous. Me and Bob. Andy from Addictive Archery. His son. We're getting on an airplane. We're flying out to Michigan. It's my first trip out to Michigan. Uh, headed to the annual Compton's rendezvous. Uh, June 13th to the 17th. I think that's Father's Day weekend. I'm super excited to go out and meet all the Compton guys in person. Uh, we're going to have a booth there. We're going to be shooting some arrows, hanging out. It's going to be great recording some podcasts. Heck yeah. It's going to be good to meet everybody from back east. Yeah. We're, we're really looking forward to that. Uh, what else? Uh, this is, uh, big time, Bob, episode 50. We made it, man. Yeah, we did. Heck yeah. Can't, can't believe it. So I guess, uh, we're nearing that one year mark and we're pretty excited. Uh, we kind of thought about, you know, who, who should we bring on for episode 50 and, you know, we kind of decided on one of our favorite guests. I mean, we love all our guests. We we feel blessed to have all these studs that we've had on the podcast. Um, but Doug Borland is a guy that me and Bob, uh, our brother from a different mother, Doug <laughs> Borland. I mean, he's the man. And I don't know what why we waited so long to bring him back on, but we got some more Doug Borland uh, for you guys for episode fifty, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TradQuest podcast. We have Doug Borland back on the podcast. This is episode 50. And I don't know, between me and Bob, I think we kind of talked about it. And we we don't know why it's taken us so long to get Doug back on. We had him on episode 27. And we're excited to uh, kind of celebrate the big 50 with 
having him back on. Yeah, I think the reason we haven't had him back on is because he's so busy traveling the world all the time yeah, <laughs> between right. Hawaii and Alaska. Hard guy to get a hold of. How things been going, Doug? Yeah, everything's good. Back in rainy Sitka, um, typical spring here, 10 days of solid rain. Good news is the steelhead are running. Awesome. You've been getting after them pretty good, Doug? Well, not as much as I'd like because it's also a busy season in the business, but uh, we've had a few. We've touched a few. Let's just put it that way. And It's always a good time of year, but it's also um, as miserable as it gets here because we're getting a lot of rain, wind, storm, hail, sleet, snow. You know how it is in, in the spring. So... On our uh, last episode, we kind of got into the high country stuff and your love for uh, bighorn sheep and doll sheep, uh, particularly, and the mountain goats. And um, on this episode, we really just kind of wanted to get to know, uh, you know, the guy, Doug Borland, a little better and kind of learn about uh, your dealings with Jay Massey and maybe some of your Moose John stuff or, you know, re- we're really uh, willing to take this conversation wherever you'd like tonight. Sounds good. It would be kind of fun probably to to revisit uh, the um, good old days in Alaska of the 70s and 80s when Jay and I were working the Moose John. And it also might be fun for your listeners to hear about Pioneering Russia, which was one of the highlights of, of my bow hunting career. There's no doubt about it. it sounds great. Well, let's let's dig into it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the moose, John. As most people know, I was a good friend of Jay Massey's, and one of our passions that he kind of introduced me to was uh, floating Alaska rivers. And... Um, even today, that's probably the very best way to get to the wilderness in Alaska. Um, if you have the um, experience to to do it, um, launching a boat and and ending a, typically a raft rather than a boat, but um, ending up 100 to 150 miles downstream two or three weeks later is pretty much the ultimate uh, way to the wilderness and. Jay and I um, started doing that oh back in the 70s when it was still you know pretty pretty rough and rustic out there. Um, I can remember our first um, descent of the Moose John River, and for those of you who don't know the Moose John name, it's actually a river that we pioneered that we nicknamed the Moose John. And subsequently, after figuring out the logistics, um, we ended up guiding bow hunters there. And it was something we did for 10 or 15 years. And after that, um, Gilt Robertson and Ernie Holland took over the operation. So it's got probably a 20 or 25-year history of um, an area that was exclusively bow hunters and probably 95% traditional bull hunters. But um, the first descent of the Moose John came about um, over a conversation with a miner that I knew that was in the McGrath area, central Alaska, 
about a river that Jay and I and Dick Hamilton had seen on a map, basically. And we knew this miner was working in this environment, and I asked him, I said, is that river floatable? Would it be possible to to put in at the mine and um, make our way downriver until we got to the closest village, what was oh, 100 miles or so, maybe village, 100 miles below. And so the miner, not knowing really what he was saying, said, well, you know, there was a, a guy floated it once. Um, and he says, sure, you can do that. Well, it turned out in retrospect, the guy that floated it had a takedown clipper kayak. And so he was able to backpack 15 or 20 miles downriver with his kayak and put it in and, and float the river with relatively uh, little uh, hardship. Um, we went out, flew the river on a very, very horrible day. Um, couldn't get low enough because of wind shear and difficulties. Dick Hamilton had a had an airplane, and um, we looked at it and said, well, you know, there's a lot of beaver dams, and it doesn't look um, too good, but we think we can do this. So we flew our gear into the mine um, and inflated one Avon 12-foot red shank raft in the little creek that was flowing out of the mine, put our other two rafts in the raft that was inflated along with our backpacks and started lining downriver, basically looking for enough water to float. Long story short, seven days later, we got to where you could actually float a raft. Wow. So it was it was one of those adventures that you look back on with you know, you forget the hardships and you say, Wow, that was cool. But at the time it was it was tough. Were you and dragging we finally got to Yes. We were dragging the rafts, we were portaging over log jams. We were portaging gear and rafts over beaver dams. Um, at, at one point, we were we were um, tempted to break the beaver dams down to get enough water to float. And Jay said, no, that wouldn't be right for the beavers. So we decided not to do that. But it, it was um, an ordeal. And, you know, it's hunting season. We're there to go hunting. But the first seven days were just physical effort, just going downstream, finally finding a side creek that came in that added enough water that we could inflate all three rafts and go hunting. And it turned out that that trip, we had another old week plus, um, introduced us to the moose john. And Dick Hamilton shot a nice caribou bull. I shot a nice uh, moose. And we saw black bear in the hills that were grizzly. We said, you know, this is the ultimate, and nobody's ever done this before. How do we 
find a way that we can come back because this obviously isn't the way. But that was the introductory trip to the Moose John, 1978, I'm going to say. Wow, 1978. That was the year I was born. That's awesome. So, <laughs> Jay, Jay Massey, uh, you know, you made the comment about him, uh, you know, it wasn't right, wasn't fair to the Beavers. I think that kind of speaks, uh, into the kind of guy that Jay seems to have been, you know, from what I've read and heard. Um, maybe speak a little bit about, you know, for the younger guys that don't know who Jay Massey is and, you know, who you knew him to be. Uh, Jay was amazing. He was a very, I would call it conservative, um, bow hunter, um, very much into the craftsmanship and, and the making of the equipment and the process, um, but yet became in Alaska uh, one of the leading uh, kind of proponents of the hunting philosophy. And it wasn't just bow hunting. He was recognized by the hunting community and the political community, which is even more important as a spokesman of, 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 of the, the way hunting should be done. Um, he was um, appointed by the governor to the Fish and Game Board, which is all political. Um, he was the outdoor editor of the uh, Anchorage Daily News. Um, when I met him, he was the... Um, information and education officer for um, the Alaska Fish and Game Department. So he was the one that, that published the Fish and Game magazine. He had a TV show, um, which was put on by the Fish and Game Department, which featured, um, you know, fishing and hunting in Alaska. But um, through his efforts, he kind of... Um, became a leader in a, what I would call, um, conservative, um, go slow, less consumptive philosophy in the woods. And therefore he was accepted not only by the mainstream hunting community, but also by the non-hunters and, and even some of the antis who said, you know, if everybody hunted the way you did, um, you know, we we could support it. So Jay was uh, an exceptional person and you know, I can't I can't think of anybody in today's environment that I can really compare to him um through his writings and through his um interaction with, with hunters and bow hunters he became well-known and and uh, through his kind of unta- untimely uh, death from cancer when he was way too young, um, he's he's become one of those people that uh, lots of us look up to, and I'm one of the first. Very, that was uh, very well said. Um, me and Bob both have his uh, Boyer's Craft book and it definitely gets you you know even if you've never built a bow it gets you fired up and wants you to 
really makes you want to dive in and do it. Absolutely. I, one of the fun things that I remember about Jay is he never made the same boat twice. And so he was always experimenting, always changing. Uh, I can remember him coming over to my house with a new flat bow that he had made. And he was shortening um, his his flat bows until, you know, to the point where, you know, they were pretty critical. And he had just brought this this Indian-style flat bow over, and he, he was... Um, he had sent it back that, and he said, you know, this is the ultimate. I don't know if it was even 50 inches. It was, it was a little short 26 inch draw length that he was working on. And he said, let's go shoot it. And we stepped out on the porch and he drew it back and it just exploded into splinters, <laughs> fell down around his feet. And he looked at me and said, well, back to the drawing board. <laughs> But that was his bow making. He he loved making bows. He loved, um, you know, experimenting with with styles and and never made the same bow twice. But I. Wow, he, that that would have been a. Seems like it was a pleasure to have him as a friend for sure. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, when's when's the last and time you? Back... Go ahead. I was going to say getting back to the moose john um we like that country so much because we have met a a native the end of that trip when we were floating out the first descent and we were floating out and we were camped on a on a sandbar at the confluence of the main river where it where it um intersected with another river that was navigable and lots of people came up and down and we were probably six or seven hours from the native village. Uh, that evening we were cooking um, moose ribs over the open fire and we hear plum dark, we hear a boat yes, coming up river and they saw a fire and they pulled in and it was this, this Native turned out to be the chief of the village, and and Jay wrote about him later in some of his books in the Alaska Bowman. But uh, anyway, they stopped, and they said, well, where are you guys coming from? And we said, well, we floated down the Moose John. And they said, oh, no, it's not, can't do it. It's not navigable. And we said, yeah, we did. We came down from the mine. They said, oh, no, can't do that. Waterfalls, log jams. And so we had trouble convincing them that we had made it. And then that that same camp, the, the old Gusty McKyle, who was the chief of the village, he um, looked at Jay's longbow hanging in the tree. And he said, oh, you guys are bow hunters. And we said, yes. He said, oh, I used to do that. It was It was what I used to do. And Jay took the bow down and handed it to him and Jay was probably shooting 72 pounds at that time. It was an Osage longbow, and old Gusty grabbed that bow and started to pull it back and looked at Jay, and he goes, too many, too many winters. So <laughs> he couldn't quite get it back, but he knew what it was. <laughs> uh, oh, and so, so awesome. we ended up in the village, and um, 
we decided there has to be some way that we can make this happen. And we couldn't afford to do it on our own. We said if we started booking some people, um, we could, you know, probably open this up and and uh, find a way where we could be out here every September. And that's what we did. Wow, that's awesome. And you said that uh, uh, Ernie Holland, Hollander, runs it now? Yeah, Ernie Holland. Uh, yeah, when Jay died, um, we, Ernie and I and a couple other good friends of Jay's, we finished his season. And then Joe Robertson came and helped. And, and then Ernie took it over and did it for almost 10 years, I think, or even more. Um, we had kind of a who's who of traditional bow hunters that, that did that trip. It was sort of uh, well-known in the traditional community, uh, starting with Doug Kittredge and Jim Doherty's son and the Wenzels and Rothar and a lot of names that you guys would know. Um, they all did the move John, and it was uh, for a lot of them their first real wilderness. I mean, these white-tailed deer hunters, and um, it it was um, not exclusively for traditional bow hunters, but those who weren't traditional, we tried to convert them before they went or after, for sure. And uh, so we had a good run. We would take more than maybe... Oh, not more than about a dozen people down the river. And we started out doing uh, outfitted trips where you could go on your own. And then Jay got his guy's license, and I was an assistant guide. And so he could fully guide if, if he had somebody who, who wanted to do that. But um, it, it really you know, was a subsidy for our own habit. We wanted to be out there, and so that was the best way to do it was to to take some people, and every year we could open the camp. We could hunt a little before, hunt a little after, and those were kind of the good old days in Alaska because you could still find places like that that you didn't have anybody else using. Is that still producing moose, moose hunting today? Well, yes and no. There's the the Moosetone River right now is kind of fallow. Um, I went there last year. Um, it's interesting because there were several when when Ernie quit doing it, there were several guides that wanted that spot. But truthfully, it's kind of self-limiting. It's very difficult to land an airplane there. It's iffy. And so the pilots don't want to go in there because it's a good way to bust an airplane. And uh, we started off that nine-mile trek. We, we got around that by finding a place you could marginally land an airplane. And so after we found that, it cut out that, that nine to 15 miles of very difficult uh, upper country and you could land and throw your ass in the river and go. But even now it's just a place nobody really wants to go. And the second thing is the, the work involved in floating um, and guiding most 
big time guides don't want to do. Um, it's eighteen to twenty thousand dollars now for a moon sun in Alaska, wow. and for the guides, they want to get in, they want to get out, they want to make it easy as possible. And unfortunately, they're using the airplane as a hunting platform. Um, they the typical way that big time guides do it is they fly, they locate moose. They bring the hunter in. They camp overnight, which is required. The hunter shoots the moose the next day because they've got it pre-spotted and pre-scouted. They fly the hunter out that day. They fly their packers in to take the meat out, and it's a three- or four-day deal. Well, the experience of floating moose, John, is 10 days at a minimum, and it involves making and breaking camp every day. And so it's not commercially really viable for the high-end guides who want to get in, get out, get their money, and produce a trophy, quote, and go on. And so it's a, right now it's, it's, it's kind of fallow. I went into the camp last year with Sterling Holbrook and his wife, Krista. We had a tremendous time. We were the only ones there. We spent almost, well, 18 days, I think. Um, we had a pact that we were not going to shoot a moose that was more than a quarter mile from the river or more than a half a mile from camp. <laughs> Therefore, we didn't get a moose, but we danced with a few moose, and we took pictures, and we called some in. But we were, we're all 70-ish, let's say, and we're not going to be backpacking the moose a mile like we used to do. But the, the river's still there. The camp's still there. The wilderness is still there. It's um, underutilized, but probably only crazy traditional bow hunters would do it. <laughs> it's a trophy experience, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. A trophy experience. That's a good way to put it. I took a fat black bear there last year probably the best eating bear that I've ever taken. And um, we we took pictures of moose and saw a grizzly and just caught grayling and shot mountain grouse. And it, it's a great great place to be. And my, my heart's there every September. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, speaking of shooting, are you uh, still shooting one of Dick's bows? I am, yeah. I, I have to tell it quick story because Dick gave me a, one of his new Wolfer recurves and I'm a longbow shooter and I have been since probably early 70s and I thought well he gave me this beautiful bow I gotta learn to shoot it and so I started shooting it and took it to Hawaii with me this, this year and proceeded to shoot over the back of two different beautiful access bucks and right now, mentally, I don't know that I'm into a recurve. <laughs> I, I love longbows, and I shouldn't take longbows. But this little recurve, I can stand and shoot the target with it and do pretty good. But I am I can't really make the transition yet. So um, the jury is out on whether I'll, I'll hunt with it again. 
That's awesome. What? Yeah, I just Doug just sent me a or Dick just sent me a wolf or I called him and I'm actually trying one out right now too. So tomorrow, tomorrow will be my first day out in the woods actually stump shooting with it. So I love it so far, but I'm a, I'm a recurve guy. So I think it's going to stick. You know, it's a beautiful shooting little bow and I've got some other excuses like you always do. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the shots was a deer moving, you know, walking to a very small, through a very small shooting lane. I had a ground blind, and I hurried the shot. I know I did, but I can make that shot. It was, you know, under 30 yards. And the other one, I was sitting and, and a little bit surprised by the deer. They showed up too fast, and and so I couldn't stand. I was shooting sitting down, and I had to kind of lean out and, and shoot, but this was probably 22 yards. Both of them I shot high, and maybe it's just too fast of a bow for me. I'm not used to shooting it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Have you shot the koi, koi wolfer? No. This this is the, the well, I forget, his original. Yeah. Yeah. Bob's got got has a koi wolfer. He was trying out and a wolfer, weren't you? Yeah, it's just a koi wolf. It's his. Oh, oh it's koi the, wolf. Yeah, it's the hybrid longbow. It's a longbow instead of a recurve. Well, I, I haven't tried that, and you know, I'm trying to get in in shape, both shooting and and hiking for our sheep hunt this fall. And um, I, at this point, I'm thinking I'm going to go back to shooting. Uh, Dick's longbow. Um, it just, it's just natural for me. And so when I'm standing on the deck looking at a silhouette, I can, I can shoot the recurve and I can make it happen. But in, I don't know, in the hunting situation, my mind reverts back to a longbow style and I'm, I'm having a little trouble converting. So we'll see. Yeah, as you bring that up, I we talked to I guess this is episode fifty, so we've had forty nine other interviews, and we hear a lot of people's future hunting plans. But I I'm always thinking about uh, your adventures that you have with uh, Yote and Dick, uh, heading up into that uh, uh, doll sheep land. So I'm excited for you guys, and I'm always thinking about it. So I'm really uh. Oh, that's God's country, and you know there are few places left in in America, maybe the world, uh, Alaska for sure, where you can go and feel like you're the first person that's walked in the valley, and that's that's one of them. It's work to get there, but once you're there, it's pristine, it's pure. And anybody who's thinking about doing Alaska, that that uh, Brooks Range. Um, especially Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is about as pure of wilderness as there is left. And, and, uh, I can't recommend it more for a trip of a lifetime. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Uh, speaking of trips of lifetimes, you, you seem to have, you know, been fortunate to be on many and you kind of alluded to, uh, Russia. Um, that sounds, you know, like another trip of a lifetime. If you guys don't mind diving into that hole, rabbit hole. 
Well, I was I was very blessed to be in the right place at the right time. Um, I got invited in I'm going to say '89 um, to go on a junket, um, which is, might not be the right word, but it was a government-sponsored trip to the USSR to the Soviet Far East. At that time, it was still, um, you know, USSR, and but it was opening up. It was perestroika. It was glasnost. It was the kind of change that was going on. And the governor of Alaska uh, got an invitation from the governor of um, Primorsky, which is basically the southern part of the Russian Far East, eastern coast to bring a delegation. And he filled it up with politicians, with with senators and his staff and aides and all of that. And at the last minute, he looked around for somebody from the business community. And Ernie Holland was my partner, and he and I had retail stores. And so we got invited for no other reason than we were just in the right place at the right time. So we jumped on this airplane, charter plane, and we were the first delegation um, to go to the Soviet Far East um, since Brezhnev and Ford signed a peace agreement in Vladivostok. So this was, you know, the only other trip that had been ahead of us, and we went there when it was it was still closed, basically. Um, they had AK-47s on the street. Uh, we were controlled completely where we would go and what we would do. Um, and what it did for Ernie and I was we said, wow, this country is beautiful. It's like Alaska was 15 years ago. There's, there's no commercial hunting. There's no commercial fishing. Um, it's remote. It's wilderness. How can we? How can we figure out how to come back? So we started inquiring about the bush, about Siberia, about places to go to do what we love to do, and we made some connections because we were in this official government uh, delegation. We were dealing with the governor of the Pomorsky region and the governor of the, of the Chukotka. And these are all like states that are opposite of Alaska, just across the pond. And um, we started saying, hey, is there any way we can come over and go hunting or go fishing? And through our contacts and a subsequent trip or two, uh, we got special permission to be the first bow hunters into the Russian Far East or all of Russia, um, first modern bow hunters, let's say. Um, I'm making it a little simplistic because they required us to demonstrate to them that um, we were capable um, to the point where I had to bring... Um, bow hunter education. I called Dave Samuels, who was head of the I, whatever I, um, 
whatever the, I forget what the name was for the boner education program. And he gave me a complete set of, of their materials. I um, took, I, I felt like, you know, Glenn St. Charles trying to prove the bowl would, would work because we were on a provisional um, tags. We got special permission to go, but we had uh, once in a lifetime, or not once in a lifetime, but, but a, a one-at-a-time tag. They sent a fishing game officer with us. And this was all under the guise of, of us bringing tourists and bringing them some income. We said, you know, you've got a resource that's underutilized. You should let us come. We'll bring hunters and fishermen, and uh, we'll we'll pay you money for doing that. And so the government, there was no private enterprise at that time. They gave us special permission for some exploratory uh, hunting and fishing. Um, we did... Let's see. We did um, Siberian snowshoe, which was Asiatic bighorn. We were the first people to do that. We did um, um, moose, which are basically the same as the Alaska Yukon moose, just the same size, same everything, um, just across from Alaska, basically. There are other moose in, in Russia, but the ones that are we did big bear, grizzly bear, which versus are the same same bear as we have here. Um, I uh, Russian boar hunted unsuccessfully, but that was awesome. Um, we did fishing for all the salmon species for time in, which is a um, salmonoid that gets over 100 pounds and exists in rivers in Russia and Mongolia. Um, we did Atlantic salmon in the northwest side of the state or the, the country in uh, Archangelis, Archangelisk and uh, completely different, but fly fishermen that we booked. So we basically had three years of outfitting and booking hunters and fishermen in Russia. And um, just because we were there at the right place at the right time, um, we got to be first into the country. And I took mostly um, clients who I already knew from the Moose John. And so um, they were used to let's just say they're experienced campers and used to adversity, not expecting to kill something necessarily, but going for the experience. And uh, so we went into the country with, with no expectations, just happy to, to be the first there. And it, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was a, a unique opportunity that'll never be repeated. Um, Today, bow hunting is illegal in Russia. And before that, it was illegal in Russia. So we got a little window where we had special permission to go. And with the sanction of, of their fishing game, Pomohotka, 
um, we got special tags and, and special distance to go. Um, the first trip that I took um, was an exploratory trip. I was by myself with um, nine other Russian explorers, and um, my contact was through a group that I would call the Russian Geographic Society. And when I'm saying Russian, it was still USSR. These were um, privileged um, Soviet folks that were um, not privileged because of politics or position, but privileged because of of their educations. And they were scientists. They were they were doctors. They were physicists. They were. I mean, I can remember the, one of the first trips the guy that was with him was, was a quantum physicist, and whatever that is, you know. <laughs> and he got time off, and he belonged to a um, to an explorers group, and those explorers did uh, whitewater rafting and mountain climbing and um, remote trips that were exactly what, what Ernie and I wanted to do. So we made contact with them, and they invited us to go. And so my first trip was with them, and they it was not a hunting trip. It was just an exploratory trip. The excuse for the trip was to go to a special river in central Russia that was one of only two rivers in the world that bifurcated or split on a continental divide and flowed to two different oceans. So this is a free-flowing river, and it splits, and one branch goes to one ocean on the side of the continental divide, and one goes to the other. And there's only one other place in South America that does this. So this was our goal, was to go there and then float 150 miles of river. And so I wheedled my way onto that trip um, semi-illegally <laughs> because I didn't have a visa to go there. But um, they dressed me in geologist uniforms and told me to shut up, and they basically smuggled me into Siberia. And I got to spend, you know, two and a half weeks on this trip with them. And it was amazing. It was just, um, it was, it was pure. They had one Russian who spoke a little bit of English. And I spoke little or no Russian. But somehow we, we figured it out. We were, we were comfortable in the wilderness, I'd say. And from that, I developed contacts and developed, um, people to help me to, to be kind of uh, guides and liaisons. And, and so we started taking uh, some fishermen and hunters over. So was this country, like you had uh, said earlier, like did it have the Alaska feel but 100 years prior, less developed? It, it, was, it was amazing, you guys. It was we went to coastal rivers that had um, five species of salmon that ran up them, just like they do in Alaska, 
but not a single tannery, not a single processing ship, not a single anything, a native village. And you could see, you know, these these miles of salmon coming up the rivers. And and because it was so remote and because Russia was so uh, backwards is probably not the best word, but to me it was, uh, undeveloped, um, they had no way of processing and catching salmon. So they it was just just like it always had been. They were running up the rivers and spawning and and uh, that's just the way it was. Bears were eating them, and um, it was untouched. You have to remember also that the, the Russians were not allowed to own firearms, so there was no hunting allowed wow. um, by Russians again, USSR, um, Soviets. And so the people that took us in the field were typically... Uh, either trappers or uh, reindeer herders. They were there. They had a very um, complex and um, you know important um, reindeer farming co-ops, nomadic reindeer herders, and these were were people of the land. I mean, they were great outdoorsmen and great woodsmen. They would be our contact. To go into the to the area where we wanted to hunt or fish. Um, if they had a gun, there would be one gun issued to the um, village, and it would be locked up, and it was there for one person to have permission to use it for predator control. So they really didn't have any hunting going on, other than commercial trapping and commercial hunting. So um, it was it was unexploited. I mean, it was pure. Oh, that sounds amazing! They did amazing. have trapping and even moose hunting commercially. So they'd have government hunters and government trappers that that killed moose for meat and also for hides. And a lot of the drainages had a professional trapper in them because furs were important over there at that time. Anyway, we got in on a on a early um, exploration type, trying to open up tourism, hunting and fishing tourism for um, the Russians in the Russian Far East, and so we did. Probably, I did oh three years of of spring and summer hunts, and also fly fishermen during the summer. Three years of of guiding over there. And was that the the window that short? Did how long did they allow bow hunting, and why did they, you know, do away with it? Do you know the politics involved in that? Well, politics is a great that's that's the word. Um, when we did it, um, we were introducing it and trying to introduce it the right way. What happened is there was a wave of. American and European trophy hunters, horn hunters, let's say. And they came in behind us with big money. And I'm not afraid to name names. Kleinbergers out of Seattle. Um, these people were just 
killers. They were coming, trying to get the first and the biggest and the most. And so when they came in behind us, they were paying huge money. And they would jump on a helicopter and go look at 25 rams and shoot 10 of them if they wanted, or 10 bears and shoot 8 of them if they wanted. The rules suddenly went away because of the big money. And the, when we were doing it, was still USSR. It was still um, regulated, even though it was a horrible structure. But there was a structure. In August of 91, um, there was a revolution, a mini-revolution in Russia. And um, Gorbachev went out, basically, under gunfire and Yeltsin came in. I was sheep hunting on the mountain in August of 91 with some clients when the tanks were rolling in Moscow. And they basically shut the country down. My wife was in Moscow at the time, and she was loading the car with provisions looking for which direction to run because there was a revolution in the making. Um, I was with Paul Brunner and uh, Tom Moore, two great clients, chasing snow sheep. We'd been dropped off and I had backpacked probably 15 miles from where they dropped us off. When this revolution happened, they sent the helicopters to pick me up because they had grounded every flight. It was illegal to fly, but they knew we were out there, so they tried to come and get us, but they couldn't find us. And so basically they came to try to pick us up and couldn't find us and went home. Well, the upshot was the revolution only lasted four days. And so the USSR flags came down, the Russian flags went up, and suddenly we had a new country. And by the time we came out of that, um, hunt, uh, it was no longer USSR, it was now Russia. And when it became Russia, it became like the wild, wild west. All of a sudden, there's no rules. We don't quite know who's in charge. We don't know whether the old fishing game department is going to be involved or we're going to have new. And greed took over the people that were in power suddenly had unlimited power so they could, you know, say, okay, I can take your hunting and fishing, just how much money do you have? And it became so distasteful for us to be there that we just said, no, we're not going to play this game. Um, it also, there were some safety issues. I had, my, my last trip, I had hunters on a bear hunt and the helicopters land landed to pick them up and they said, you know, we're here to pick you up, but we need $5,000 more than, than uh, our contract says. And I said, no, go away. I don't care. I'll camp out here the rest of the summer. I'm not paying you <laughs> 5000 more. But that's basically what was happening. It was deteriorating. The system was deteriorating. The private baggers and exploiters were there in mass. Um, and... It, it just 
we had three three years of really good, um, you know, prime premium hunting, and then it went away. There were two or three years of exploitive hunting after that, and then with Putin and the new regime, they shut all that down. They still have very high-end hunting over there, if you want, but there's no bow hunting. It's it's illegal now. Did you get a you know get your chance at hunting over there? Did you go on some good hunts yourself uh, while setting this all up for everybody else? Well, not as many as I'd like because guiding, you know, you don't get to hunt a lot. But you know, that's for me. The experience is the same, and I I guided to the I, I guided sheep hunters, I guided moose hunters, I guided um, you know bear hunters. All successfully, we took I think five um, uh, Russian grizzlies with a long bow. We we took the first Siberian snow sheep. We took the first I think I shot the first moose, which is quick quick aside story. I had um, <laughs> I got invited to um, do a TV program in Russia and. Don't ever do a TV program as a bow hunter. It's just, it's um, against anything you've ever tried to do. But anyway, at that time, it was still USSR. There was one TV station in Russia, Channel One, government-owned. It was the only TV that there was. On Sunday afternoons, they had a outdoor program and through my contacts they knew this dumb americansky was over there <laughs> going hunting with a bow and they wanted to feature me on and our people on this program so stupidly i said yes and they sent a cameraman and a sound man and a i guess probably KGV man, anyway, a third guy, uh, to accompany me on a season of our hunts. And I had American clients, and we had we got some beautiful film. I mean, it was, it was they're professionals. They were shooting, um, you know, like Sony Betacam back in those days. Those were like 30-pound TV cameras, the best you could get. Um, and super professional except they'd never been in the outdoors much and so the noise they made and you can imagine trying to film stalking a bear or hunting a moose and all of that but they followed me around for a season and um i can remember stalking a giant brown bear just gorgeous brown bear biggest big probably biggest brown bear either alaskan or uh, Russian that I had seen and they wanted me to see it and I got within bow range of it and I looked around and I got a cameraman and a sound man and another guy and you know a cast of thousands no backup gun and a huge bear that I'm you know if I don't do it perfect he's going to eat one of us and so I respectively refused but we got that bear on film, and it was it was perfect. And so, 
the, that fall, I had two clients from Montana, a father and son, for moose hunting. And we got dropped into a beautiful remote river, float trip, um, quite a few moose. We had uh, calling was excellent. The bull cow ratio was, was probably two bulls to every cow. It was tremendous calling conditions. And so we had a lot of bulls coming in. But my clients were not quite up to the task. And the, the kid was 16 years old and probably um, could have probably the best bull hunter at that age that I'd seen. He was really good. But his dad was a little bit eager and, and wanted to, to be the shooter. So we ended up calling a nice bull in for the camera and his dad shot him the shoulder blade. Well, that didn't work. So called another one up the end that would have come right by the 16-year-old. The dad got in a hurry, made a bad shot on it, and uh, we ended up not getting that move for couple of reasons. One is the Russians had dogs that wanted to run it down with, and that's not a good thing to do with a wounded moose. So anyway, we had a had all this great footage from a, a year of of these guys following me around, but we had no conclusion. We had no kill. And they were just saying we gotta kill an animal, we gotta kill an animal. So a couple days before this this um, boat trip ended with, with the father and son, and the father was a great guy, and he said, you know, I wounded a moose, I'm, that's my tag, I'm not going to, I don't want to shoot another one. I've used my tag, and that's honorable, and I appreciated that. And his son said, you know, I'm, I'm happy, I'm going to go fishing that day. So I took the camera guys out on a horrible, horrible weather day. We had winds and and storm to the point where my calls were being blown back in my face. But I said, you know, let's go out and see if we can get a moose on the camera. And so we about oh three or four hours into this this hike, um, I was walking along the riverbank and I hear a sound and it was unmistakable to me. It was two moose antlers crashing together. And I said, okay, guys, we're in a good spot. And I went downwind. I got into what I called an apple orchard. It was it was birch tree, but it was interspersed. All of a sudden, the weather calmed. The sun came out. The wind died down. I told the camera guy, I said, shut up here. Sound guy, shut up there. I'm going to go up here 30 yards ahead of you, and I'm going to call. And I made two bull grunts, and this 60-inch bull just came on a string, crashed out of the brush, walked by me at 12 yards. I shot completely through him. He died on camera. It was just the perfect ending to this this epic that we've had all year we had set up trying to do. And it was celebratory, and, and I made national TV in Russia. I made all Russian uh, Sunday night uh, Alaska sportsman kind of thing. And um, I, I have a copy of that film, which is still one of the best outdoor films I've seen. 
That's awesome. He showed those Russians the longbow can get it done. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 were skeptical. I have to say. I mean, they but it was all new to them, and and you know the process to them was really important too. The, right. And and so I think they did it really right. I mean, they they did want to get a kill on the on the. Um, TV because that's you know you can't hunt unless you actually kill something once in a while. So, but uh, that was kind of typical of those those early years. We did a lot of of tramping around, a lot of exploration, and a little bit of of taking of some animals. That's awesome. I I think uh, it, these adventures and um, things you've done probably have paved the way more than you would imagine for um, traditional bow hunting as, as a whole, I would imagine. Well, like I said, I was just in the right place at the right time. That, that Russian thing could have never happened before and never happened after. And, um, you know, Jay was doing the moose down at the time and I, I split from him. I said, Jay, I've got to take advantage of this opportunity to go to Russia. It's just too, too cool. And, you know, I didn't make any money. In fact, I invested quite a bit of money in it. But just the chance to be there and do it. And to a man, there isn't anybody that went over there with me, and not just men, but a, a lady fly fisherman or two. Um, they all say that was, that was and is the best trip of their life because you know, it was untied, untested, and uh, will never be repeated. Yeah, that's super cool. I know we've heard Dick. Dick went over there once, didn't he? And Yote and uh, well, Don, Tom- Don Thomas. Three times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Thomas won a couple times, and and yeah, we did. We did uh, Kamchatka, which was and is a lot like the Alaska. Peninsula, uh, bear and moose hunting. Um, we we did um, moose in the far north, which is Chukotka, which is across from Katabu and Nome, basically. Um, you know, we did snow sheep in two different areas: one in the Arctic and uh, one along the coast. Um, we did, uh, I did an exploratory Russian boar trip that is memorable most for the tiger tracks in the snow outside of the tent. Um, and the tigers were, were hunting the same pigs we were. And it's really unnerving to see a dinner plate sized wall track. We never saw tigers, but they were there. So those kind of things are memories of of a lifetime. Yeah, there's not no places like that anymore. It seems like, and it's it's too bad it all got ruined by my money and greed. It sounds like like the way most things get ruined anymore these days. Yep, I think I think that's really true, and and I don't have positive feelings about um, the Russia now. They're getting more and more controlled. I'm just saying I'm not optimistic that it will change. Um, there's still some very, very high-end 
hunting going on. Um, if you got 25,000, you can probably still hunt in Russia, but uh, nothing like we were doing in, in no bull hunting allowed. Be. So where, where do you see, you know, looking around Alaska, like what's the scene there uh, as far as bow hunting and the future of bow hunting? Well, I'm still optimistic about Alaska. Alaska still got the premium wilderness uh, left in the U.S. Um, it has become a rich man's game, especially for the guided species, and I hate to see that. Um, right now, a sheep hunt is 20,000 and up. Um, moose are around 18,000. Uh, probably that market is pushed by the Canadians because um, they're the alternative for Alaskan Yukon moose. So the species that require a guide, um, sheep especially, goats, uh, Alaska brown bear, grizzlies, those are, have become very, very expensive. Hunting is still great. There's still lots of places to go, but, um, it's just not, it's out of reach to a lot of what I would call common, uh, Americans. Um, you can still do on your own hunting in Alaska and, um, uh, with a little research and, um, you know, some, some spunk. Um, it's, there's still a lot of country to, to hunt in and you can still do it on your own. And I admire those that just go for it and do it. Yeah. We just had a uh, Brian Burkhardt on, um, guy from Michigan that's been going for like the last 10 years. And I, what did yep, he see? Absolutely. He's, and he's done real well. Uh, but it sounds like the, it's the logistics. Even if you're doing it yourself, it's just all those airplane rides is what really uh, catches up to your pocketbook. Absolutely, it's not cheap, and I even uh, we have no road systems. I mean, that's basically in the in the hunting off of the road systems are are either controlled through permit system or they are um, you know they're overrun. There's too many people. But, uh, you know, you can pick a species, let's say black bear or um, Sitka black-tailed deer, and still do it very reasonably and uh, experience Alaska on your own. It's it's still very doable for, you know, um, I mean, the price of an airplane ticket to get to Alaska. Do you got any uh, hunts planned um, besides the doll sheep? Are you coming to the lower 48 for any hunting this year? You know, I don't have anything um, totally penciled in. I have been trying to chase a cow's deer in Arizona for the last couple of years. Um, a learning curve there. I go there on business and usually buy a tag, and I have a limited time to hunt. And so I'd like to do a little more of that. Um, I would like to be back in moose camp in the fall, which um is a is you know an institution for me i that the moose john moose camp is where i'd like to be every september um i hunt access deer a little bit in hawaii and pigs over there so i'd like to do that so 
I'm going to keep the bow in hand, and if not, I'll have a fishing rod probably. <laughs> uh, can't beat that. That's awesome. Um, you got you got anything, Bob? Um, <laughs> you're talking about the opportunities in Alaska. How are the, how are the caribou numbers up there? It, it sounded like you know they went down pretty hard for a while, and Alaska and Canada are they coming back or? Is that a good option for a you know affordable type self guided hunt up there now, or are the numbers too low? You know, in in there's some generalities. We've got some some herds. Caribou herds are broken into regions, and some of our like the Multatna herd and some of the major herds are on in decline, but others are not. And, uh, the, the porcupine herd, which is the eastern Brooks Range, um, is, is in really good shape. And that's what I would recommend if somebody wanted to do drop off caribou hunts. And it's basically out of Fairbanks or Bettles. Um, and those are very doable. And generally from mid August to mid September, south side of the Brooks Range, um, and there's lots of air services that can drop you, and and I think that's that's what I would do if I wanted to to do a specific caribou hunt. And Most the, of my caribou hunt... Are, are the, the caribou hunts... Incidental. Incidental. Are the caribou hunts... I mean, it, I know you're, it sounds like you're floating and just running into them incidentally, but are you just getting dropped in one spot? I mean... Typically, what's what's it look like for a caribou? Hunt? Well, it's, yeah, it's very doable being dropped in one spot because the caribou are moving. They're they're not mass migrating that early, but they're moving and they're getting coming from high country to low, and they've got some specific um, movements. And generally, the air services that are doing drop off hunts, they have a. Um, a line on the caribou. They're flying. They kind of know where they are and they can put you, you know, in an area that you're going to, you're not going to get dropped off and just be out of the caribou. They'll, they'll know the movements and they'll be able to put you into a right air service in Fairbanks. There's a number of, of good air services that, that, that do that. And, um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good way to go. It's still not cheap because you're paying four or five hundred bucks an hour for your flying. So you get two guys, you you fill a plane up. It's still going to cost you a couple thousand, but um, you know you can you can camp on your own and and have a great hunt. Usually, um, you know, do well stalking and spotting and stalking. Yeah, that's awesome. Do they now? When you were saying it's a couple thousand, do they charge that? That's per person, though, right? I mean, if you did one. Well, on plane trip there, like there that. Are two ways of doing it. My my advice is to try to get a price per hour of airplane time. The trend is for them to charge so much per trip, but generally that's way higher than saying I want to charter your airplane for five hundred bucks an hour, and I want to go from A to B. So there's, there, there, I mean, it, okay. it's kind of hard if you're not, 
used to doing it, but um, some air services will quote you a flat rate. Some will quote you a per hour of airplane time. The difference is if you have a flat rate and you don't get a caribou or two, they'll make quite a bit of money because they don't have to make an extra trip to bring meat out. If you have a, a per hour, it may cost you more if you get more meat, but at least it's an, it's it's optional. You don't have to pay that. And I prefer the, the um, hourly rate if you can get them to quote that for you. Okay. And also use the Fish and Game Department and the local biologists. They're very, very good at helping you pick a spot and where to go. If you do your research, um, you don't have to rely on the air service to say, okay, I've got this camp or that camp. You can say, okay, I, I want to go to this drainage or this lake or this area and then just get a charter to get you in there. So uh, in closing, do you have anything um, that you would like, you know, maybe like to the uh, the new up-and-coming, it doesn't even have to be a youngster, you know, We've got uh, older guys coming in all the time, trying to pass the torch on. Uh, um, you know, we really want to, I guess, uh, highlight woodsmanship and uh, tr- traditional values upon those lines. Well, you bet. I could, I could probably do a, a whole nother episode on that uh, subject. Um, <laughs> I, I will say that. For me, I'm a process-oriented bow hunter, and I think today's um, approach is way too results-oriented, and a lot of newcomers are so um, driven, for whatever reason, from the media, from um, the commercialization of of bow hunting, um, to be successful, and it's much better to measure success in hours in the field and, and the learning experience of being there. Um, so, you know, for me, the, the, the trip is, is the end in itself. And, uh, if you get an animal, that's awesome. But, you know, getting back to Jay Massey, um, Jay probably took less than two dozen big game animals in his life. Um, but he did it the right way, and you know, to him, it was all about the the woodsmanship, the experience, the equipment, the way you did it, um, the the utilizing the whole animal, brain tanning the hide after he got done, making a quiver out of the the otter he killed, and those kind of things, you know, last forever and. Um, there's just too much emphasis this days on on getting an animal and getting it the quickest and easiest way. And um, I, I'm, I'm simplistic in a way, um, but I think the the results that you get from doing it um, the hard way are far greater than the results you might get of having um, 
a guide set it up for you and, you know, and having the technology that enables you to do it at the long range and, and have the um, process uh, shortened to the point where, you know, hey, I was out there and I got a good result, but I, I, I didn't get the experience that I might have. And hopefully the young people can, can learn that. And, and uh, like you say, I could spend a, um, a whole hour on, on that um, philosophy because it's something we're losing. Yeah, absolutely, and I, th- and I think that uh, we will have to schedule that and do that. That will be, a, I think, a great topic to have with you. Um, you know, we kind of started with Jay, and we touched on Jay a bunch, and I know we're kind of, I said I'm in closing, but could we maybe go uh, uh, kind of end this with Jay um, and give us maybe a uh, one of your favorite hunting stories that involved you uh, hunting with Jay? Sounds good. I can, I, I got us. A hundred, but um, <laughs> one one of my favorites is one of my early sheep hunts, and my brother and I and Jay, uh, we were in the Brooks Range, and um, we were um, on the south side of the Brooks Range where Jay had done some research, and he said there's some rams there. We had spent, um, oh, I'm going to say five days um, getting to where not five days just hiking in, but five days working this area and finally getting some uh, possibilities where we were seeing a legal ram or two and we kind of had the country figured out and we were, you know, we were to the point where we were seriously sheep. And so my brother and I and Jay went in one morning and there was a legal ram, not a huge ram, but a legal ram at the head of this canyon. And so we worked up to him and got within, I'm going to say, 500 yards. And we were looking him over. And Jay says, Bobby, Doug, he says, I, 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 we can't hunt that ram. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he's trapped. He's, he is boxed in. He's got nowhere to go. And I said, well, you know, he's a sheep. I think he can maybe get up those cliffs. And Jason, no, I think we've got him in a corner. And he said, you know, I, I just, I just don't feel right about this. And Bobby and I looked at each other and we're saying, well, I don't, we don't totally agree with you, but we understand where you're coming from and so stay here and cover us. We're going to go move on him. (laughs) We'll make that judgment later. (laughs) So, so Bobby and I put the moves on the chief. Well, sure enough, we got, you know, like 70 yards from this ram and we, he busted us and he goes up this chimney, up this, this, Shoot uh, that you wouldn't think a sheep could go up, and pretty soon he's he's gone. Well, he wasn't trapped, but to Jay Massey that was strong. To him, he said, "We just can't do this. That sheep doesn't have a a, a fair way to escape." And that was Jay. I mean, if he didn't think that 
the animal was had an equal or better chance, he didn't care. He backed off. He said, "I'll find a, I'll find another one." Yeah, so fair, that's a classic Jay Massey story. Fair, fair chase uh, is. Um... Yeah, it can be. It's it's hard to define it, but it seems like it was it always it was of, always on his matters mind. Of matters of degree, exactly. And for him, it was a little bit beyond fair chase, but that's what we all admired about him because, um, you know, if he did it, he did it. He did it right, and he did it the the hardest way possible. And I think he got the ultimate reward out of doing it that way. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Well, great visiting with you guys again, and good luck with your projects. I'm glad to be part of it. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. It's been awesome. Episode 50 is behind us. We're looking forward to the next year on the podcast. Uh, Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or send us a private message on Instagram. Let us know some guys that you want to pop up on the podcast or some topics you guys would like us to talk about. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, don't forget to check out our new website that's going to be popping up here soon, tradquest.com. We're going to have hats and shirts for sale. Uh, tell a friend about the podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play. Leave us a five-star review. That always helps the podcast out. Uh, Look forward to some more giveaways. Those are coming. Once again, we appreciate you guys. Thank you.